have the Romans in a damn parade. Hi, and welcome to the Ancient History Hound podcast. My name's Neil, and in this episode, I'm braving the spotlight by taking on a much-debated question. What were the origins of Greek tragedy as a dramatic art form? By the end of the 5th century BCE, tragedy was an established part of the city Dionysia at Athens, and even today it's something we all link back to. But where did it start, and how was Athens involved in it all? It's a tough question but I hope to map out a plausible way that tragedy ended up as it did. In doing so, I'll be citing a few scholars and drawing on arguments which I've read elsewhere with a dollop of my own thinking. The reading list for this episode will be in the episode notes, which is on my website, ancientblogger.com, as well as some maps, diagrams and other bits, which hopefully help give a bit more background and add to the episode. When you start on the subject of Greek tragedy and, by default, Greek theatre, one figure is often associated with how it all started. His name was Thespis, and even today, the connotation is there. It's where we get thespian from. Thespis was said to have been the first actor, winning first prize for a tragedy in the year 534 BCE at the city Dionysia in Athens. The primary evidence supporting this is an inscription on a large block of stone, otherwise known as a stele, and this one goes by the name of the Parian marble. It records a range of different events, for example, the foundations of cities, births, deaths, notable events, and battles. The big if in all of this is how reliable the inscription is and what it generally tells us. To start with, let's take the date. Dating wasn't done with a number, instead it was done via the name of the Archon presiding for that year, and this is a common dating technique we see at Athens. The first problem we have is that the name is partially worn away. As such, the year is a guesstimate, as scholars have had to backfill what they think the name of the Archon was, and thus work out the year. And then there's the fact that this happened at the city Dionysia. As Professor Eric Sapo noted, the festival isn't mentioned in the inscription at all. We just assume this is where it took place. Perhaps a fine assumption to make, but an assumption nonetheless. Bearing in mind what it supports, the inscription lacks much detail. What can be reliably gleaned from it is that whatever the year was, this is when Thespis first acted, and a goat was established as a prize. Though that might seem an oddity, the goat does link to tragedy, as tragedy, the word, has been translated as goat song, perhaps meaning that the goat was a prize. Associate Professor Andrea Rothstein notes how the inscription doesn't tell us whether Thespis was an inventor of this, or just the first winner of an already established art form. And then there's the date of the Parian marble. The last entry on it is dated around 264 BCE. So this isn't a piece of contemporary evidence, though I should check myself a bit there. Just because a piece of evidence dates after the event doesn't mean it's automatically wrong. Perhaps there are records available at that time which we don't have. And let's not also forget that contemporary evidence can be as unreliable through bias as anything dating after it. That said, Rothstein does mark down any date prior to the 5th century BC on the marble as not that reliable. What would help here is if there was supporting evidence concerning Thespis elsewhere. The earliest surviving record of Thespis is in a play called The Wasps, 
by the Greek comic playwright Aristophanes and dates to 422 BCE. Here, Thespis is commented on as first producing dances on the stage, but nothing more than that. The notion that Thespis was the originator of tragedy is rebuked in a dialogue called Minos. This is dated mid-4th century BC, and though attributed initially to Plato, it's generally held that someone else wrote it. Here, the idea that either Thespis or a character called Phrynichus, another playwright we know of, were the originators of tragedy, is strongly argued against. In their place, the originator of tragedy is Athens itself. Perhaps by that they meant the city Dionysia. It might also have been just a nice bit of PR here for Athens, and this is certainly something which comes into play later on. In 335 BCE, Aristotle wrote Poetics, and it's the first work which goes into the structure of tragedy. Again, what we don't find is any reference to Thespis. For Aristotle, the art form started when an individual first responded to a hymn sung by a chorus. In place of a name, we are given a method by which tragedy took form. I should add that Thespis is mentioned by Aristotle as the originator of tragedy, but this reference is from Themistius, a Greek writing in the 4th century CE, much, much later on. Where other sources mention Thespis and place him at the birthplace of tragedy, they do so as someone who travelled and lived in Attica. They don't link him with Athens. For Dioscorides, a Greek who wrote in the latter 3rd century BCE, Thespis invented the new art form as a diversion for the villagers. Horace, the 1st century Roman poet, described him in his cart, which he used to travel around Attica and he used to perform from. Thespis even featured in an anecdote about Solon, the famous lawmaker of Athens. In Plutarch's Life of Solon, he's banned from performing the new art form because Solon found it dangerous. Art often seeming dangerous when it takes a new form. Sometimes it's comfortable to think just how much history repeats itself. What we find with Thespis is a contradiction. He's both elusive and prominent in equal measure. If we can't pin him down, we can at least start with where some of the sources place him. Not in Athens, but outside of it and in those towns and villages in Attica in the 6th century BCE. Before I do, however, here are some words from the very appropriately titled Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast. In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selleck, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at Casting Greece or on Facebook at Casting Through Ancient Greece. I look forward to seeing you there. Thanks again to the Casting Through Ancient Greece podcast. As I've said before, if you're an ancient history or history podcaster who wants to swap ads, just get in touch. I realise I've mentioned Attica a few times, and perhaps you may not be fully aware of what I mean by it. Greek city-states weren't just a city. They were a city and the area around it which they ruled and governed. Attica wasn't just one homogenous blob. It was split into districts and smaller regions. A basic unit was known as a deme 
perhaps what we'd call a county or a state, and this comprised of a number of towns and villages. In the month of Poseidon, which tallies around November and December, these deems organised their own festival for Dionysus, and it was called the Rural Dionysia. These were very much local affairs. As a general rule, you didn't want to be travelling by sea at this time of the year, so it was only journey by land. Each deem had its own date in its calendar for the rural Dionysia. It's probable that the main town in each deem was the location of the rural Dionysia, as it seems unlikely for each small village to be able to put on much of a celebration. So each deem then acted independently of the others. There wasn't a date when all of the deems of Attica held the Dionysia, and this gave rise to the possibility of visiting your neighbour's deem if you wanted to see what their rural Dionysia was like. The rationale might be because you were nosy, that you fancied another celebration, or simply that the other deem was richer than yours, and you could therefore witness and be part of a bigger festival. Fear of missing out is not a new thing by any measure. The next question is what went on, and why it was all needed in the first place. I'll start with the why, because, well, that'll set the scene nicely. According to myth, Dionysus arrived in Attica, but wasn't well received by the locals. It's something which forms the background of Euripides' play The Bacchae, where the Theban king Pentheus isn't sold by this newfangled god in his antics. For anyone familiar with Greek myth, this is never a good position to take, and there's a nicely macabre anecdote about this play at the end of the podcast. The punishment the locals suffered wasn't as bad as what Pentheus endured, but it wasn't particularly nice either. Dionysius afflicted the men with a state of, well, I'll say it, permanent arousal. The rule Dionysia incorporated this myth in the procession, which was a phallic carnival spectacular. A large wooden phallus was carried in a procession, with other members of it also carrying phalluses. It was noisy, and along the way there was singing and dancing and a lot of drinking. In the 5th century BCE, and certainly in the city Dionysia at Athens, which I'll, I'll get to in a minute, there were ship wagons which were decorated and acted like floats in a modern-day parade. It's been argued that the procession of the rural Dionysia of the 6th century BCE might also have included wagons decorated as ships. The procession was fundamental in many ways. It acted to welcome the god Dionysus into the town and gave the Dionysia a defined starting point. It also set the tempo of what was to come. It was fun, boisterous and lewd. Those in it might be singing crude songs and there was a back and forth between the crowd watching and the procession as it wandered along. If you've ever had one of those discussions about what event you'd witness in history, perhaps you might want to add this one to the list. The procession moved into the town and made its way into the theatre. Now, to start with, I need you to detach the word theatre from the modern connotations it has. This wasn't a ready-made structure purely for the performance of a play, mainly because that art form hadn't yet come into being. The word theatre translates along lines of a place where something is seen. The most basic theatre was somewhere that people could sit and watch or listen. Of course, what would help is if you had some way seating at a higher level to whatever was going on. And fortunately, Greece had a natural feature which facilitated this in abundance. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Hills. Theatres utilised hills. People could sit on the hillside and watch below in the flat area at the bottom of the hillside. And this became known as the orchestra. A theatre wasn't used for any one particular thing. Perhaps a good analogy would be a school hall or community hall. It might have been where town meetings took place, where 
statues were located, and perhaps where other celebrations occurred, and games might even have been played there. And when democracy became ensconced in Athens and rolled out to the deems, you can appreciate the value of a place where people could gather and hear people speak. Though there were eventually 139 deems in Attica, the number of identifiable theatres is very, very low. We've only got six which can be identified from an archaeological standpoint, and three extras we know about. But Jessica Pagger has argued that this could rise to as high as 19 when other evidence is considered. And you might ask yourself, why are there so few? The answer to this is found in the simplicity of what a theatre was. All you needed for a basic theatre in the archaic and classical period is a hillside with a flat area at the bottom. Ones which are identified today are done so mainly because they evolved into grand structures with supporting buildings around them, such as a temple to Dionysus. Often, they have stone seating, and this element is the result of much later developments. It wasn't as how they would have originally been. At the best, the theatre of the 6th and 5th centuries BC in Attica would have consisted of wooden seating on the hillside. You can therefore appreciate how perishable such a setup was, particularly if it was a small town where no later developments were made and nothing stone came into place and there weren't those supporting buildings. The oldest theatre which survived in Attica is at Thorakos, southeast of Athens. The first stage of construction is argued as dating as early as 525 BCE. It had a rectangular orchestra, a temple to Dionysus and some smaller buildings. Many of the theatres of the 5th century BC had narrow rectangular orchestras. Think of the touchdown area of an American football pitch or rugby pitch. You'd often associate theatres with circular orchestras, but it seems rectangular were a tried and tested shape and carried on being used in later periods. And this challenges the idea that the circular orchestra replaced the rectangular version. Bit of a niche argument, but an interesting one. Once the procession had arrived in the town and made its way to the theatre, things calmed down slightly. The image of Dionysus, probably a votive wooden image, which had been taken out of the town to join the procession, was put back wherever it stood, perhaps in the temple to Dionysus, or even in the theatre space. It was here that a local chorus, or perhaps a travelling one if the dean could afford it, performed a hymn. Performance art of singing and dancing wasn't restricted to the Dionysia. There were all women and girl, all girl choruses in Sparta who performed in the sanctuary of Artemis as part of a festival display. Dancing and singing was an understood and widely used art form in other festivals, and it's referenced widely in art and literature in ancient Greece. Performing hymns wasn't a static thing. Part of the challenge was to sing and presumably harmonise all whilst dancing and moving. It was a particular type of hymn which performed here. It was known as the Dithyram, and it was a hymn to Dionysus, which would have told a story about one of his many exploits. There was much prestige in the quality of performance, and in a way this balanced the more raucous procession which had occurred earlier. It's with these Dithyrams that we find an initial link with drama. Earlier I recalled the involvement of Thespis, either as an originator of the tragic form, or someone who took an existing idea and just ran with it. What is suggested is that at some point in the mid to late 6th century BCE, someone stood up in front of the chorus and interacted with them. I'm not talking about a heckler, by the way. The individual played a role and responded to the chorus, and this is reflected in the name of their role, a hypocrite. 
The word today has a somewhat different meaning, but hypocrite translated originally as interpreter from underneath or responder. The word hypocrite also came to be translated into another word, actor. This new development where an individual and a chorus told a story had huge potential. Suddenly a hero or some character from myth could be represented and give their side and their words to a tale. The actor was an extra dimension to the story. He could give the audience a different perspective and his interaction with the chorus could add tension. This also feed the chorus up from that of just narrating because they could assume the form of a single entity or group of people with a single voice which is what we generally see later on in tragedy. It was a groundbreaking development. Suddenly the performers of the time had a whole new way of, to explore stories and entertain people. Looking for modern analogies, I can only liken it to how everything changed in cinema when speech was added to films. It's plausible then that this new tragic art with an actor and a chorus existed in the rural Dionysia before it came to Athens. I should add though, it's unlikely that this form of tragedy was a manifestation of the form that we would understand later in classical Athens. There was only one actor, and perhaps the performance only told part of a story, much more of a sketch than a play with a beginning and an end. What is evident is that once it took hold in Athens, the city Dionysia facilitated changes in this art form which made it into the tragedy we know today. The city, or Great Dionysia, was held in Athens in what we'd mark down as March in our calendars. Exactly when it came to be is anchored to the Parian marble, which as I've discussed, isn't perhaps as sound as we might think for a foundation date. And I say that because there are arguments which suggest that a Dionysia was celebrated in Athens as early as the 560s BCE. And a good question might be why. Why did Athens introduce a Dionysia when there were Dionysias celebrated in the towns and villages of Attica? As with Thespis and tragedy, one individual is associated with the introduction of the Dionysia at Athens. The individual was called Pisistratus, who came to rule Athens as a tyrant. In the modern age, we tend to use this word purely in the pejorative sense. It's an insult, aimed at someone who is acting badly in their use of power. And the same could be said of the word used in ancient Greece. A tyrant had normally seized power in a non-conventional way. And once in place, they wielded absolute power with no checks or balances. It's pretty obvious that this could lead to bad behaviour. Yet in some instances, a tyrant could really benefit the city he governed. Polycrates of Samos, the self-styled pirate king, is a good example. And under him, large building works took place, which helped establish Samos as a real power. Likewise, Pisistratus benefited Athens in two ways. Eager to showcase his city amongst the other Greek cities, he established the Panathenite Games and the city Dionysia. Both were versions of existing events, the rural Dionysia and the Panhellenic Games, the most famous being the Olympic Games. I should note at this point there may have been a low-key city Dionysia in place at Athens before Pisistratus, but at the very least he gave it a huge makeover. Professor Eric Sappo points out that there's nothing much before 500 BCE where we have a city Dionysia with tragedy being performed. But of course, that doesn't mean that it didn't necessarily exist. Just that a particular element of it, the tragic performance, wasn't present. Or if it was, then perhaps 
not in the way it later manifested. In some ways, what we have is akin to the ancient Olympic Games. If you're going to define the Olympic Games as a five-day festival with a suite of different events, then you're going to have to date it starting much later than when it did. The Olympic Games, as you might have heard on my episode, evolved over time. The earliest games, if you can even use that word, involved a solitary foot race. But I'm not going to dwell on exactly when the city Dionysia started. What I'm concerned with is how the dramatic art of tragedy became something we can identify today. Luckily, we have evidence of this in the earliest surviving tragedy. It's called the Persians. It dates to 472 BCE and was written by Aeschylus. We know that there were plays prior to this, for example, The Sack of Miletus by the playwright Phrynichus, which was performed in 492 BCE. Like the majority of Greek tragedy, this didn't survive. We've only got around 32 tragedies with which to make sense of an entire genre. Many hundreds didn't make it. What does survive is the theatre of Dionysius, though, and this became the location for tragic performances in the classical period. The earliest datable parts of the theatre don't date before 500 BCE, and a visitor to it then would have seen a much more basic version than what is located there today. No stone seating, just a set of wooden benches, a rectangular, flat orchestra, and a small temple to Dionysus. The site you visit today are the ruins of the mid-4th century BCE renovations. However, the really big thing about it all of this wasn't the form that the theatre took, it was that it existed at all. To quote Professor Casapo, The theatre allowed for the first time the kind of fixed performance space and fixed audience that made it possible for the transformations of previously processional choral entertainments into entertainments with a sustained interaction between character and a level of narrative development that we might comfortably describe as a plot. In short, the theatre allowed tragedy to happen by giving it a defined space. The traditional space for performances had been the Athenian Agora, and this wasn't ideal. The procession had used the Agora for the more basic singing and dancing, that is to say at specific points within it, and this had been facilitated by temporary raised wooden benches. Apparently, in one instance, these collapsed, leading to several deaths. And you needed a theatre or a specific space to watch this new art form, because the new dynamic, the interaction between actor and chorus, wasn't easy to watch and listen to amongst the processional throng. Given the freedom of a performance space, tragedy soon evolved. Aeschylus apparently added a second actor, and later Sophocles a third. This increased the range of narrative options. Plots could be much more complex. If we take this position, that the theatre was built to respond to this new art form, then it goes that tragedy was being performed in Athens prior to the theatre. What we don't have is much in the way of understanding how that manifested. Perhaps it was a single actor, a chorus, and a mythic episode as a background to the performance. It should also be considered that the theatre wasn't just built for tragedy. The choral performances were also moved here, and this might imply that there was just more than one reason for the theatre being built. It could have been that the city Dionysia was just getting too damn popular. The theatre facilitated tragedy, but it could also take the dithyrams on as well and this left the procession more space to go about its business in the Agora. It wasn't just in Athens that changes were taking place. The new tragic art was shared back to the deems of Attica, as in the 5th century BCE, theatres started to pop up in the towns and villages. Given that the city Dionysia occurred in spring, 
and that the rule of Dionysia in midwinter, it may have been that performers acted out segments of plays or plays themselves from the following city Dionysia in the rural ones. It's difficult to imagine there being no exchange between the two. This idea can literally be supported in the form of a marble statue base which gave the names of the Chorus and the Choragos who had been victorious in a competition held in the Deme of Anagoros. The base supported a statue which isn't there. There's just a couple of holes in the top which would have been used for the statue. It's dated to the late 5th century BCE. So perhaps by this point, the city Dionysia has exported the format of competitive tragic performance out to the Deems, and perhaps they came to form part of the rural Dionysia there. With that in mind, I want to get back into the city Dionysia because this was the new platform for tragedy, and to understand how tragedy took hold is also to understand what happened. It also seems to have been enormous fun, and anything which later involved a giant automated snail can't be ignored. For any tragedy, the start of all of this was the summer prior to the Dionysia, which occurred, as I said, in the following March. It was here that a Korogos was chosen to sponsor a production, and this included everything from paying for special effects on stage to keeping the chorus of between 12 to 15 members fed and watered during rehearsals. It wasn't cheap, but far from being something to avoid, it was avidly pursued. To sponsor a winning play meant fame, and what better way to lord over your rich rivals than to have your production win in the city Dionysia. But as I've said, it, it wasn't cheap. Estimates range, but a figure of around 3,000 drachma has been argued for. To give that some context, a day's salary for a skilled labourer who worked on the Parthenon was one drachma. Themistocles, famous for his involvement in the Greek victory at Salamis, was one such Korogos. In 476 BC, as part of his sponsorship of a play by Phrynichus, he set up a painted picture. These were known as Panakes, and Aristotle mentioned how one Korogos featured in the Panache of the play he sponsored, and I did wonder, were these the ancient Athenian versions of billboards or big movie posters you'd see up? The following months would witness the playwright direct and drill the chorus in his play. As I've mentioned, this wasn't a static performance. The chorus danced and sang. And as much you might imagine the amount of hard work which went into performing at the city Dionysia, likewise, the actors would also be rehearsing. In the spring, our month of March, and the Athenian month, the Elathabellion, the city Dionysia took place. It still kept much of the features of the rural Dionysia, but it was able to elaborate and make grand certain elements of it. The initial procession was a low-key affair. This occurred very early in the morning, or at night, and it was a torch-lit procession, and during it, the wooden idol of Dionysus was carried from outside the city and into the temple. What followed was in stark contrast. The day procession was every bit as loud and brash as that of the royal Dionysia, except, to borrow a line from a film, it was turned up to 11. A popular theme was Dionysus arriving by ship, so wagons were used, as I mentioned earlier, and dressed up as ships. A dominant theme was the phallus, as it had been in the rural Dionysia, or was in the rural Dionysia. There were the phalophori, the phallus berries who held, well, no, you can work that out. There were also the ithyphalloi, or erect phalloi, and these had phalluses on them pretty much everywhere. Living up to the name, they were a tad more aggressive, and would charge at the crowd, threaten them with a phallus or two, or just being obscene. 
There was even puppetry with satyrs who could have a particular part of their body moved up and down, and again, you can guess which that is. In later processions, things even got more bizarre. In 308 BCE, an automated snail was built, complete with its own slime. Nope, nope, I've got no idea either. Estimates of the size of the procession vary. Professor Casapo gives a number of 8,000 people. Some 1,225 would have been chorus members who were going to perform. This was anything but a local festival as it had been in the rural towns and villages. It wasn't just big in numbers, it was big in glamour. The procession dripped in ostentatiousness. Thucydides reported how Pericles referred to the various vessels used in processions as a sign of the city's wealth. Gold ornaments carried and even golden outfits worn with chorus members dressed as they would perform, so between the gleam of gold and silver, you'd have seen men dressed as all sorts of animals and mythical characters, and of course, phalluses. On the subject of cost, it's been estimated that the city Dionysia of the late 5th century would have set the city back 30 talents of silver. A talent was around 26 kilograms in weight, so that's sort of 780 kilograms of silver. Half of this was funded by the various Korrigoi. To give that some context, just imagine a cow made of solid silver. Once the procession was in the city, it would have arrived in the Agora. In Athens, the Agora had a number of connotations, it wasn't just the marketplace. The procession moved around and danced, pausing occasionally at shrines and monuments to perform. The procession then moved on to the theatre, which is where sacrifices were made. I say sacrifices, as there were a large number of them. Isocrates gave a number of 300 cattle, but a figure of 200 has been given as a reasonable estimate, but that's still a lot. Though it was a religious festival, the city Dionysia was all about Athens and it was keen to use the festival as good PR. After the wars with Persia, the Delian League was established, and this was a group of Greek cities who formed an alliance to counter Persian threats. As the Persian threat faded, the Delian League slowly morphed into the Athenian Empire. In 454 BC, the joint treasury for this was moved from Delos to Athens, and the procession included the tribute paid by the allies of Athens each year. The bars of silver and gold were carried into the theatre and shown to everyone. Due to the practicality of this, it's probable that this happened in the initial ceremony of the theatre, when all the sacrifices happened. This act could have been seen as Athens boasting about its empire, but it could also have been seen as Athens showing its allies how valuable their contribution was, or perhaps a bit of a mix of the two. The second day featured performances, but not in the form of a play it was time for the choruses to take the spotlight. Along with the procession, this was the key element drawn from the rural Dionysia. It's not certain how many choruses might perform at the rural Dionysia. If anything, it's almost impossible to work this out. After all, it depended on how big the dean was and how much it was able to support this element. Perhaps only a few performed, one from each age range. The bigger rural Dionysius might support a number of choruses and the result would have been some form of competition. At the city Dionysia, this was ramped up. As I've mentioned earlier, deems were a subunit of Attica. Well, a larger unit was known as a tribe, and there were ten tribes, or phylae, which consisted of a number of deems in Attica. At the city Dionysia, these tribes supplied a chorus each to compete against the other tribes. It was every dance-off movie you've ever known and more. Competition was a theme which ran throughout the city Dionysia. The tragedies were also performed in this context, 
It might seem unexpected to house art in a competitive format, but I suppose we have this in the modern day. To the Greeks, competition held a special place, particularly when in the worship of a god. Don't forget that the Olympics and Pan-Hellenic Games were done this way too. Competition could be seen as an offering in itself. Here, you were given your best to a god. On a smaller scale, the choral competitions offered the chance for tribes to demonstrate their commitment and value to Athens. Manuela Giordano neatly points out, and I quote, For each of the ten tribes, the performance of dithyrambic choroi represented the occasion for self-definition and self-assertion before the polis. The rural Dionysia weren't set up to have this level of competition amongst the choruses. That's assuming each dean was able to fund and organise several choruses to have a competition. You might imagine the hype and excitement in the lead-up to the event at the city Dionysia. People would have speculated which chorus was their favourite, what rumours they heard, and knowing people as I do, I reckon a few informal bets were had. The following three days featured competitions for the tragedies. Three were performed each morning with a satire play and a comedy itself being performed in the afternoon. Judging the plays was done via a ten-man panel selected by lot. Exactly how they voted isn't clear, but we know that the prizes and announcements were made on the final day. It was here that the Korrigos and playwright achieved fame or drowned their sorrows, and I suspect a fair amount was drunk regardless of the outcome. However, the city Dionysia was more than a festival to Dionysus, and tragedy was more than just an element in it. To quote Professor Edith Hall, It was one function of the tragic performances at the city Dionysia to provide cultural authorization for the democracy and the interstate alliance. What moved tragedy from a solo narrative performance by a chorus was the inclusion of the person to respond to the chorus, and a dialogue is a central requirement to any democracy. As such, it's possible to consider tragedy as extolling a central democratic value, debate. On a practical level, Athens ensured that everyone could attend the city Dionysia from all over Greece by hosting it in spring, when travelling conditions were far more favourable. And it wasn't always your friends and allies attending. Thucydides wrote that the peace of Nicias, which was a truce during the Peloponnesian War, was renewed by oaths by Spartans, who travelled to the city Dionysia each year. I suppose at least if you had a Spartan sat next to you during a performance, you were guaranteed they wouldn't spend the time chatting. Big festivals were often the backdrop to all sorts of goings-on. If you've listened to my episode on the Olympic Games, you'd have heard me mention the anecdote about how Herodotus used that event to give readings from his histories, and which consequently led to his fame. Sunrise at this time of year is around 6 o'clock in the morning, and it's likely that tragedies took place early on. But before them, and likely on each day, there was a roll call of those who'd performed great services to the state, and a parade of war orphans. These had been looked after by the state, and they were now old enough to fight, and they wore armour and stood in front of the audience. The essence of the Athenian and Athens carried on in the tragedies which followed. The playwrights, Korygos and the chorus, were Athenian. Greece had its pan-Hellenic games, such as the Olympics, and here Greeks from all over could meet and watch Greeks from elsewhere compete. Not so in Athens. You'd be watching Athenians perform, Athenian plays, and of course, this could have enforced particular viewpoints. The city Dionysia was a cultural engine for Athens, 
and two anecdotes from Plutarch go well to underscore this. The first involved Athenians captured during the Peloponnesian War at Syracuse following the infamous Sicilian expedition. Thousands were funnelled into open quarries as makeshift prisons, and some apparently earned their freedom if they could perform lines and excerpts from Euripides. The second is a bit more macabre. Following his defeat to the Parthians, the head of Crassus, a Roman general, was brought to the king. At the time, Euripides' play The Bacchae was being performed, and the head was used as a prop by an actor who would have previously have expected to use a fake head of the King Pentheus. I don't know who is committing to the role more, the actor or Crassus. Plutarch was writing in the 1st century CE, so centuries after the classical period I've been discussing, yet Athenian tragedy was still something recognised and celebrated. And I say Athenian tragedy because that's what it was, something Athens had developed and used for a variety of purposes. Perhaps one day we'll find Greek plays written by non-Athenians. be great to hear just how they sound. I hope this episode has given you some ideas and information about how Greek tragedy may have came about. As I said earlier, there's much we don't know, and I think I've knitted together a plausible narrative to it all which addresses the major elements we do know about and tries to make some sense of them. Before you go, a quick appeal for a review if you can leave one, or just word of mouth. Recommend to a friend, a study group or class if this is something you're studying. If you want to say hi, then I'm on Twitter, at Ancient Blogger, and this is the same for Instagram, Facebook and YouTube. All ancient history content there, by the way. There are also the episode notes on the ancientblogger.com website. If you are keen to do some more reading, or if you're just curious about something I referred to, head over there and have a look. Till next time, keep safe and stay well.